Section 12 of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 12. Among the Diggers in 1853. Part 2. When Philip returned from his excursion down the gully, he gave me a detailed report of the results, and said, "'Gold mining is remarkable for two things, one certain, the other uncertain. "'The certain thing is labour, the uncertain thing is gold.' "'This information staggered me, so I replied, "'Those two things will have to wait till morning. Let us boil the billy.' "'Our spirits were not very high when we began work next day.' We slept under our small calico tent, and our cooking had to be done outside. Sometimes it rained, and then we had to kindle a fire with stringy bark under an umbrella. The umbrella was mine, the only one I ever saw on the diggings. Some men who thought they were witty made observations about it, but I stuck to it all the same. No man could ever laugh me out of a valuable property. We lived principally on beef steak, tea and damper. Philip cut his bread and beef with his bowie knife as long as it lasted. Every man passing by could see that we were formidable and ready to defend our gold to the death, when we got it. But the bowie was soon useless. It got a kink in the middle and a curl at the point, and had no edge anywhere. It was good for nothing but trade. A number of our shipmates had put up tents in the neighbourhood, and at night we all gathered round the campfire to talk and smoke away our misery. One whose name I forget was a journalist, correspondent for the nonconformist. Scott was an artist, Harrison a mechanical engineer, Doran a commercial traveller, Moran an ex-policeman, Beswick a tailor, Burney a clogger. The first lucky digger we saw after picking any jack came among us one dark night, he came suddenly head foremost into our fire, and plunged his hands into the embers. We pulled him out, and then two other men came up. They apologised for the abrupt entry of their mate. They said he was a lucky digger, and they were his friends and fellow countrymen. A lucky digger could find friends anywhere from any country without looking for them, especially if he was drunk, as was this stranger. They said he had travelled from Melbourne with a pack-horse, and near Mount Alexander he saw a woman picking up something or other on the side of a hill. She might be gathering flowers, but he could not see any. He stopped and watched her for a while, and then went nearer. She did not take any notice of him, so he thought the poor thing had been lost in the bush, and had gone cranky. He pitied her, and said, My good woman, have you lost anything? Could I help you look for it? I am not your good woman, and I have not lost anything, so I don't want anybody to help me look for it. He was now quite sure she was cranky. She stooped and picked up something, but he could not see what it was. He began to look on the ground, and presently he found a bright little nugget of gold. Then he knew what kind of flowers the woman was gathering. Without a word he took his horse to the foot of the hill, hobbled it, and took off his swag. He went up the hill again, filled his pan with earth, and washed it off at the nearest water-hole. He had struck it rich. 
The hillside was sprinkled with gold, either on the surface or just below it. For two weeks there were only two parties at work on that hill, parties of one, but they did not form a partnership. The woman came every day, picking and scratching like an old hen, and went away at sundown. When the man went away, he took with him more than a hundred weight of gold. He was worth looking at, so we put more wood on the fire, and made a good blaze. Yes, he was a lucky digger, and he was enjoying his luck. He was blazing drunk, was in evening dress, wore a black bell topper and kid gloves. The gloves had saved his hands from being burnt when he had thrust them into the fire. There could be no doubt that he was enjoying himself. He came suddenly out of the black night, and staggered away into it again with his two friends. One forenoon, about ten o'clock, while we were busy peacefully digging and puddling, we heard a sound like the rumbling of distant thunder from the direction of Bendigo Flat. The thunder grew louder till it became like the bellowing of ten thousand bulls. It was the welcome accorded by the diggers to our trusty and well-beloved government when it came forth on a digger hunt. It was swelled by the roars and cooies and curses of every man above ground and below, in the shafts and drives, on the flats, and in the tunnels of the White Hills, from Golden Gully and Sheepshead to Jobs Gully and Eagle Hawk, till the warning that Joey's out had reached to the utmost bounds of the goldfield. There was a strong feeling among the diggers that the licence fee of thirty shillings a month was excessive, and this feeling was intensified by the report that it was the intention of the government to double the amount. As a matter of fact, by far the larger number of claims yielded no gold at all, or not enough to pay the fee. The hatred of the hunted diggers made it quite unsafe to send out a small number of police and soldiers, so there came forth at irregular intervals a formidable body of horse and foot, armed with carbines, swords and pistols. This morning they marched rapidly along the track toward the White Hills, but wheeling to the left up the bluff they suddenly appeared at the head of Piccaninny Gully. Mounted men rode down each side of the gully as fast as the nature of the ground would permit, for it was then honeycombed with holes and encumbered with the trunks and stumps of trees, especially on the eastern side. They thus managed to hem us in like prisoners of war, and they also overtook some stragglers hurrying away to right and left. Some of these had licences in their pockets, and refused to stop or show them till they were actually arrested. It was a ruse of war. They ran away as far as possible among the holes and logs, in order to draw off the cavalry, make them break their ranks, and thus to give a chance to the unlicensed to escape or hide themselves. The police on foot, armed with carbines and accompanied by officers, Next came down the centre of the gully, and every digger was asked to show his licence. I showed that of William Matthews. It was not that the policy of William Patterson was tried and found wanting. He was at work on his claim a little below mine, and knowing he had no licence, I looked at him to see how he would behave in the face of the enemy. He had stopped working, and was walking in the direction of his tent, with head bowed down, as if in search of something he had lost. He disappeared in his tent, which was a large one, and had near the opening a chimney built up with ironstone boulders and clay. 
but the police had seen him. He was followed, found hiding in the corner of his chimney, arrested, and placed among the prisoners who were then halted near my tub. Immediately behind Patterson, and carrying a carbine on his shoulder, stood a well-known shipmate named Joint, whom poverty had compelled to join the enemy. He would willingly have allowed his friend and prisoner to escape, but no chance of doing so occurred. And long after dark, Patterson approached our campfire, a free man, but hungry, tired, and full of bitterness. He had been forced to march along the whole day like a convicted felon, with an ever-increasing crowd of prisoners, had been taken to the camp at nightfall, and made to pay six pound ten shillings, that is, a fine of five pounds and one pound ten shillings for a licence. The feelings of William Patterson and of thousands of other diggers were outraged, and they burned for revenge. A roll-up was called, and three public meetings were held on three successive Saturday afternoons, on a slight eminence near the government camp. The speakers addressed the diggers from a wagon. Some advocated armed resistance. It was well known that many men, French, German, and even English, were on the diggings, who had taken part in the revolutionary outbreak of forty-eight, and they were eager to have recourse to arms once more in the cause of liberty. But the majority advocated the trial of a policy of peace, at least to begin with. A final resolution was passed by acclamation that a fee of ten shillings a month should be offered, and if not accepted, no fee whatever was to be paid. It was argued that if the diggers stood firm, it would be impossible for the few hundreds of soldiers and police to arrest and keep in custody nearly twenty thousand men. If an attempt was made to take us all to jail, digger-hunting would have to be suspended, the revenue would dwindle to nothing, and government would be starved out. It was in fact no government at all. It was a mere assemblage of armed men sent to rob us, not to protect us. Each digger had to do that for himself. Next day, Sunday, I walked through the diggings and observed the words, No license here, printed or pasted outside every tent. And during the next month, only about three hundred licenses were taken out, instead of the fourteen or fifteen thousand previously issued. The digger hunting was stopped, and a license fee of forty shillings for three months was substituted for that of thirty shillings per month. As no man who had a good claim would be willing to run the risk of losing it, the number of licences taken out after the last meeting would probably represent the number of really lucky diggers then at work on Bendigo, that is, three hundred more or less, and of that three hundred I don't think our gully could boast of one. All were finding a little gold, but even the most fortunate were not making more than tucker. By puddling eight tubs of wash-dirt, I found that we could obtain about one pound's worth of gold each per day. But this was hardly enough to keep hope alive. The golden hours flew over us, but they did not send down any golden showers. I put the little that fell to my share into a wooden match-box, which I carried in my pocket. I knew it would hold twelve ounces. If I could get so much, and looked into it daily and shook the gold about to see if I were growing rich. It was impossible to feel jolly, and I could see that Philip was discontented. 
He had never been accustomed to manual labour. He did not like being exposed to the cold winds, to the frost or rain, with no shelter except that afforded by our small tent. While at work we were always dirty and often wet, and after we had passed a miserable night, daylight found us shivering till warmth came with hard work. One morning Philip lost his temper. His only hat was soaked with rain, and his trousers, shirt, and boots were stiff with clay. He put a woolen comforter on his head in lieu of a hat. The comforter was of gaudy colours, and soon attracted public attention. A man down the gully said, "'I observed yesterday we had young Ireland puddling up here, "'and I perceive this morning we have an Italian bandit or a Sally Rover at work amongst us.' Every digger looked at Philip, and he fell into a sudden fury. You might have heard him at the first White Hill. Yesterday I heard a donkey braying down the gully, and this morning he is braying again. Oh, I see, replied the donkey. We are in a bad temper this morning. Father Bacchus was often seen walking with long strides among the holes and hillocks on Bendigo Flat, or up and down the gullies on a visit to some dying digger for death would not wait till we had all made our pile. His messengers were going around all the time, dysentery, scurvy or fever, and the priest hurried after them. Sometimes he was too late. Death had entered the tent before him. He celebrated Mass every Sunday in a tent made of drugget and covered with a calico fly. His presbytery, sacristy, confessional and school were all of similar materials and of small dimensions. There was not room in the church for more than thirty or forty persons. There were no pews, benches, or chairs. Part of the congregation consisted of soldiers from the camp who had come up from Melbourne to shoot us if the occasion required. Six days of the week we hated them and called Joey after them, but on the seventh day we merely glared at them and let them pass in silence. They were sleek and lean, and we were gaunt as wolves, with scarcely a clean shirt amongst us. Philip especially hated them as enemies of his country, and the more so because they were his countrymen, all but one who was a black man. The people in and round the church were not all Catholics. I saw a man kneeling near me reading the Book of Common Prayer of the Church of England. There was also a strict Presbyterian to whom I spoke after Mass. He said the priests did not preach with as much energy as the ministers in Scotland. And yet I thought Father Bacchus' sermon had that day been powerful, as the Yankees would say. He preached from the top of a packing-case in front of the tent. The audience was very numerous, standing in close order to the distance of twenty-five or thirty yards under a large gum-tree. The preacher spoke with a German accent, but his meaning was plain. He said, My dear brethren, Beatus illa qui pastorum non abeit. Blessed is the man who has not gone after gold, or put his trust in money or treasures. You will never earn that blessing, my dear brethren. Why are you here? You have come from every corner of the world to look for gold. You think it is a blessing, but when you get it, it is often a curse. You go what you call on the spree. You find the sly grog. You get drunk and are robbed of your gold. Sometimes you are murdered or you fall into a hole and are killed, and you go to hell dead drunk. 
Patrick Doyle was here at Mass last Sunday. He was then but a poor digger. Next day he found gold. Struck it rich, as you say. Then he found the grog also and brought it to his tent. Yesterday he was found dead at the bottom of his golden shaft, and he was buried in the graveyard over there near the government camp. My conscience was quite easy when the sermon was finished. It would be time enough for me to take warning from the fate of Paddy Doyle when I had made my pile. Let the lucky diggers beware. I was not one of them. After we had been at work a few weeks, Father Bacchus, before stepping down from the packing-case, said, I want someone to teach in a school. If there is anyone here willing to do so, I should like to see him after Mass. I was looking round for Philip amongst the crowd when he came up eager and excited. I'm thinking of going in to speak to the priest about that school, he said. Would you have any objection? You know we are doing no good in the gully, but I won't leave it if you think I had better not. Philip was honourable. He would not dissolve our short partnership and leave me alone unless I were quite willing to let him go. Have you ever kept school before? No, never, but I don't think teaching will give me much trouble. There can't be many children around here, and I can surely teach them ABC and the Catechism. Although I thought he had not given fortune a fair chance to bless us, he looked so wistful and anxious that I had not the heart to say no. Philip went into the tent, spoke to the priest, and became a schoolmaster. I was then a solitary hatter. Next day a man came into the gully with a sack on his back with something in it which he had found in a shaft. He thought the shaft had not been dug down to the bedrock and would bottom it. He bottomed on a corpse. The claim had been worked during the previous summer by two men. One morning there was only one man on it. He said his mate had gone to Melbourne, but he had in fact killed him during the night and dropped him down the hole. The police never hunted out the murderer. They were too busy hunting us. I was not long alone. A beggarly-looking young man came a few days later and said, I hear you have lost your mate Philip, and my mates have all gone away and taken the tent with them. So I want to ask you to let me stay in your tent till I can look round a bit. The young man's name was David Beswick, but he was known simply as Bez. He was a harmonious tailor from Manchester. He played the violoncello, also the violin, had a good tenor voice, and a talent for the drama. He and a man named Santley from Liverpool had taken leading parts in our plays and concerts on shipboard. Scott, the artist, admired Bez. He said he had the head, the features, and the talents of a Shakespeare. He had a sketch of Bez in his portfolio, which he was filling with crooked trees, common diggers, and ugly blackamoors. I could see no Shakespeare in Bez. He was nothing but a dissipated tailor who had come out in the steerage, while I had voyaged in the house on deck. I was, therefore, a superior person, and looked down on the young man, who was seated on a log near the fire, one leg crossed over the other, and slowly stroking his Elizabethan beard. I said, "'Yes, Philip has left me, but I don't want any partner. "'I understood you were a tailor by trade, "'and I don't think much of a tailor.' "'Well,' replied Bez, "'I don't think much of him myself, "'so I've dropped the business. "'I am now a sailor. "'You know yourself I sailed from Liverpool to Melbourne. 
And anyhow, there's only the difference of a letter between a sailor and a tailor. There was a flaw somewhere in the argument, but I finally said, Valiat quantum valere potest. Bez looked solemn. A little Latin goes a long way with some people. He was an object of charity, and I made him feel it. In the first place, this tent is teetotal. No gog is to come inside. There is to be no mining partnership. You can keep all the gold you get, and I shall do the same. You must keep all trade secrets, and never confess you are a tailor. I could never hold up my head among the diggers if they should discover that my mate was only the ninth part of a man. You must carry to the tent a quantity of clay and rocks sufficient to build a chimney, of which I shall be the architect. You will also pay for your own tucker, chop wood, make the fire, fetch water, and boil the billy. Bez promised solemnly to abide by these conditions, and then I allowed him to deposit his swag in the tent. The chimney was built in three days, and we could then defy the weather and dispense with the umbrella. Bez performed his part of the contract well. He adopted a rolling gait and the frown of a pirate. He swore naval oaths strong enough to still a hurricane. Amongst his digging outfit was a huge pick. It was a two-man pick, and he carried it on his shoulder to suggest his enormous strength. He threw tail at him to the wind. When a rent appeared in his trousers, he closed it with pins, disdaining the use of a needle, until he became so ragged that I ordered him into dock for repairs. End of section 12